Well, good afternoon, everybody. Hey, the campus ministry's here. This is amazing. It's a new spirit in here. I love it. Um, good afternoon. Um, I left off an amazing story. We're going through the book of Acts, and I, I thought it'd be good for our church to go through that because of mission love, because there's a whole lot of mission going on in there. And uh, last week, or the last time I spoke about it, because Josh spoke last week. I thought Josh did a great job last week, by the way. Come on, Josh. So I want to I put you in a place back in frame in Acts chapter 2. Imagine yourself as a Jew visiting the city of David. Because you were called there by a decree by God to be there for a festival to honor him. For a Jewish person, there were three important festivals. They had to go into the city of David, Jerusalem, to worship God. This was one of them. It was called the Feast of Weeks. It took, it took, um, it occurred 50 weeks after the Passover, which they call Pentecost, which is the 50th week. And so you're there. And the last time I spoke, when you were standing there, you saw these Galileans. One morning you got up, had your cup of coffee. You turn the corner and there are Galileans talking in your native language because you'd come from all over the world. You came from Egypt. You came from Pontus. You came from Crete. You came from Cappadocia. And they are speaking in your native language and you are utterly perplexed. And you start to rationalize. Did they live in my country then came to Jerusalem? How do they? You start almost to humanize a phenomenon, a miracle. And what's going through your mind is, what is happening? How can they speak in my native language when they're not even from my country? That's like me trying to speak Tagalog right now. Although I I am learning Portuguese. I am. I'm learning some phrases because I'm doing a wedding this Saturday for a Portuguese friend of mine and I have a few lines to say in Portuguese for, for Saturday. And thank you, Shelly, for being the photographer to that wedding. Um, it was a couple we missioned love that came to our daddy-daughter dance. And he was getting married and he saw Shelly taking pictures. And he asked Shelly to be the photographer to his wedding. And then he asked me to do the ceremony. And I said, I do. <laughs> I will. And so today I found out Shelly was a photographer as I'm down in Lachusa Beach you know, going through the, 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 the wedding ceremony proceedings, I found out it was Shelly and I was so fired up that God is working in mission love. So we're tag teaming. So we're, you're sitting there and you're trying, you're wondering this miracle of Gio and Shelly working a wedding unbeknownst to us. It's a miracle of God in my eyes. This is amazing. You know, it's a phenomenon. I could rationalize it, but it's just the hand of God. And so here they are. A Jewish fisherman speaking in Aramaic, because that was the common language, addressing a, a, a city of Jews about a Jewish rabbi, about a Jewish Messiah that their nation had crucified. And there's probably some Gentiles there too that, that became Jews, but later on uh, they got converted in Acts 10. And so when people witness this phenomenon, 
They couldn't explain it. So, so last time I spoke, Peter goes, wait, this is what the prophet Joel said. When the city of Jerusalem was falling, God says, you need to repent and I will bring the Holy Spirit. And it's going to be poured down on men, women, old men, young men. They're going to see visions. He says, it's happening now. That explains this phenomenon because God said it was going to happen. In the future, and that future is here in the last days of the old covenant. Here it is. But in the audience, some Jews were like skeptical. Hey, maybe you had too much wine. Maybe you're, you know, you had, maybe you're still partying within the wee hours of the morning. You, some of you believe that because some of you did that as non Christians, you know, you're like, it, it, it just didn't stop. You just kept going. So Peter begins to make his. Proof of this is the resurrection of Jesus. He's trying to connect the the tongues that they see with the resurrection of Jesus. This is a fisherman. He is not a scholar. He didn't go to rabbi school. He wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a Pharisee. He was a fisherman and he was a Jew and he wasn't really that good of a Jew anyway. But here he is going to explain something. So my, my take from this is the Holy Spirit has, has empowered him because he got the keys from Jesus. He says, you're the Messiah. Well, good for you, Peter, because you're going to open doors. And so this is the door that Peter is opening to the Jewish nation. He says, people of Israel. Can I go to the next slide there? Is my slide up there? We'll have to go manual. Let me turn it on. There it is. People of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it's, it's interesting he says that because Jesus was from Nazareth. That's what he became popular from when he was out there doing his thing, his ministry. They knew him that he was from Nazareth. But we all know, if you, if you study your Bible, you know he was born in Bethlehem. Doesn't say Jesus of Bethlehem because he had, to, he had to leave his hometown because Herod was killing all the two-year-olds. And his parents moved, they moved away, rightly so, and they moved to Nazareth. And he was raised there, and he started his ministry there. Another prophecy of the Bible that, the, that the, the Messiah would spend time in the area of Nazareth. It wasn't called Nazareth back then. It was called Zebulun back then. And it was the exact area where the Messiah would come. But that's another term. So Jesus of Nazareth, the rabbi who didn't go to school, the rabbi who wasn't with the Pharisees, the rabbi who wasn't with the Sadducees, but he was a man accredited by God to you by miracles. He spit in a man's eye and then he was able to see. He put mud in another one. He put his finger in the ears of the deaf and he could hear. And people saw this. People who were wailing when they knew someone died. They were crying. And then Jesus says, why are you crying? She's not dead. She's asleep. And they laughed. And then he said, get up, little girl. And she got up. So he was accredited by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you. As you yourselves know, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. That means that God had to orchestrate the Messiah to come into our world, die and resurrect. All the while, he had to give the human beings their own free will of choice to kill him. I find that very interesting. 
God's plan was for the Messiah to come and die and resurrect. Hmm, how am I going to do that? Yet he gives us free will to choose. And he, he explains. And the you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So you have man's free will and God's plan. I find that very interesting. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. God seems to work using his plan in our choices as well. I saw that this morning. Mission love. I'm going to do a wedding for a couple that doesn't go to our church. I'm hoping they will one day. And here was God orchestrating. I had no idea that he asked Shelly at the father-daughter dance to do his photography. Now there's two of us on site. If Kevin comes and makes three, that'd be amazing. Their daughter comes, three and a half. And so God's plan, which I find interesting because everyone's there for a reason. These Jews came on this festival, this feast of weeks to celebrate a mandatory holiday. And within the feast of Pentecost, there's a celebration called the Feast of First Fruits. That is a feast of celebration. You as a farmer, the very first fruits that you yield from your crop, because the whole crop has not been yielded. So the very first sign of crops being raised, you grab them and you offer them to God. That took an incredible amount of trust because you didn't know what the harvest was going to be like. So for you, it was, a, it was an act of trusting God. Here is the first fruits. I don't know if it's going to be a full harvest or not, but here is your first fruits, God. That was the festival that Jesus died and rose, and rose from the dead. And then Paul, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, he's defending the resurrection. And he explicitly says that Jesus is the first fruits of the future resurrection. In other words, because he resurrected, you too will resurrect. Yeah, and he goes, you have to trust like you do in the, in your, in the festivals with your harvest. Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection. And they were very like, I get that. We do it with our harvest. Jesus is going to do it with it. He's the first. Then we're to come because the harvest has not yet been collected. So God's foreknowledge to line up the death and resurrection of Jesus to land on that festival. That's what Peter's declaring. He's trying to convince the Jews God's foreknowledge, God's plan. And then the fisherman quotes a very mysterious psalm to the Jewish scholars. There are two psalms in, in the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms that are psalms, that stumped scholars. It was Psalm uh, 16 and Psalm 110. It just stumped them. So here's one of them. He says, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because 
you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known the past to me, the, the past of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. To the Jewish scholar, this psalm was mysterious, enigmatic. They couldn't understand it. How is this David? He's sharing about God and he's sharing in a sense what's going to happen to me. He says, you will not abandon me in the grave. And, and, and what, what Peter's saying is that David is dead. And yet he's saying this song. Who is he talking about? You will not abandon me. And what in the world is the realm of the dead? You might as well go on Netflix and watch, you know, Supernatural. The realm of the dead to the Jewish person meant a resting place that your, your soul would go there, not to heaven, but to Sheol in the Old Testament. And in the New, it was called Hades. And every soul that dies goes there. Gee, are you saying that every funeral I've been to where the minister goes and he's in heaven with Jesus, they're, they're wrong? Yes, I'm very clearly and emphatically saying they're wrong. Because you cannot go to heaven until Jesus comes back and takes you there. The fulfillment of the feast of first fruits of resurrection. John 14 says, wait, I'm going to come back. And in my father's house, there are many rooms. We have to wait. So where does everybody go until then? The realm of the dead. What's down there? That sounds kind of mysterious. It is kind of creepy, actually. But yet, it's kind of encouraging. Here is the... Jesus gives a little bit of a picture of what it looks like in Luke 16. If you want to, on your own, study that. He gives you kind of an idea of what it's like. I'm going to try to give you a diagram to kind of explain the Luke 16 passage. You die on earth. They bury your body in the ground or put you in a tomb. And based on where, when you died, on your spiritual state... God determines where you go in paradise, and, and I'm sorry, in Hades. One section is called paradise. If you remember when the thief was, was dying on the cross, Jesus told the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise. The only two possible guys that didn't go to Hades, maybe, was maybe Enoch. God took him, but he didn't say he took him to heaven. He just said he took him. So, little gray area. The other guy was Elijah. Chariot of fire, some say UFO, just saying. Somehow he took off in the air into the heights of heavens. Maybe they skipped out, I don't know. Doesn't say he went to heaven, but God set, just took them. So in this place called Hades, Luke 16 describes this Abraham's bosom where there's comfort. There's Abraham, there's peace, there's joy. And on the other side is torment. Guys, like, ah, just give me some water. And within that torment, there's this place called Tartarus. Where in 2 Peter 4 says, God has some of the angels that sinned. He has them locked up in there for the day of judgment. So there are three possible Ways to look at that, maybe four, but I'm just going to give you three. Because as you're looking through, every scholar's got an opinion. I'll give you the popular ones, okay? One, Jesus is in Hades with these imprisoned spirits. 
He goes down. But let me give you the passage. In 1 Peter 3, verse 18, Peter writes a letter to the churches who are undergoing persecution. And he goes into a little bit of detail of when when Jesus dies, where he actually goes. Because David says he's not going to be left in Hades. Peter goes, yeah, he actually was in Hades. And in verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. In that state, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. So when Jesus was dead, he was down in Hades proclaiming something. Now that word proclaiming is not a proclaiming like I'm sharing the good news again to, to hopefully you'll be saved while you're in Hades. No, 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 no. That's how purgatory got started. That's not the teaching here. It was proclaiming that I've overcome death. I've overcome sin. And so while he's there, here are three ways to look at it. While he was in Hades, he preached to everyone who died. The realm of the dead, all the souls that were in there proclaiming, I'm the Messiah, I've overcome death. That's what the early fathers believed. The early church fathers believed that. The second one is to believe that the people up until Noah's time are the ones he's speaking to. Because they were given 120 years. Noah preached to them while he was, it took him 120 years to build the ark. He preached and he preached and he preached and they said, no, no, no. And they were defiant and they were rebellious and they were so evil. God flooded the earth because they were that bad. Could have been those people. Scholars believe that. Thirdly, he proclaimed not only to the, to the human souls, but to the fallen angels and the defiant humans altogether. He preached to everybody down in Hades, saying that obviously he's overcome death. Because he's about to leave there and come back in a glorious body. Those are the three things. I mean, you could have learned that from a Bible dictionary or a supernatural. Either one, they're, they're kind of in there somewhere. And whether, it doesn't matter which one you believe, there's not a right or wrong one. If you want to do extra study and come to your conviction, that's great. But generally speaking, when you die, that's where you go. It's a temporary place. Hell is a permanent place. It is the final judgment. There's no changing that. But as almost as this this is kind of like a holding chamber. Until the resurrection or the return of Jesus comes and then he takes all of them back to heaven. Those who are in paradise and the ones who are on the other side, well, guess where they go? Right? And if you're lucky to be alive, the Bible says you get swooped up in the air. If you're lucky, you get a real 80,000 feet view of the earth before it's destroyed. This is what David was saying Peter is using that psalm because they couldn't understand it. Why is David saying about And Because he goes on to say, David's tomb is right over there. He's dead. So he couldn't have been talking about himself. He was talking about the Messiah. And then he quotes another psalm. And it says, The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies a footstool for your feet. Another perplexing statement. Because David is writing this. And he's saying, the Lord said to my Lord. And David wasn't even in heaven. He was still in the dirt. He's like, Peter's like, he's dead. How can he, what do you, what do you mean? He was, the Lord said to my Lord. What's interesting is when the Pharisees were, were asking Jesus, which commandment is the greatest, Jesus? And Jesus goes, what? Love your, love God. And then love who? Love your neighbor, right? And as soon as he gets done telling them that, this is what Jesus does. He says, while the Pharisees were gathered there, because he just answered their question, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, the son of David. He said to them, how is it then? It's a mystery. I love the sarcasm by Jesus. How is it then? That David, speaking in the spirit, calls him Lord. For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Dun, 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 dun. Glasses come down. Dun, dun, dun. How can he be his son? If David calls him Lord. No one could say a word in reply. From that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So Jesus actually addresses that psalm. And guess who was a witness to that interaction? Peter. And Peter uses that psalm to, to remind them. How could David say, Lord and Lord, if he's the son of David? Because in the Jewish mind, the Messiah was going to be a human king. It didn't dawn on them that he would be both human and divine. It never dawned. That's why those Psalms were like, what? Huh? How could that? It was so mysterious to them. And that's why the Jews got so mad at Jesus. He's equating himself with God. Jesus is like, yeah, that's right. And they got so outraged that Jesus would put himself on equal footing with God that said he must die. God's foreknowledge. God's plan. And this is the song that he's teaching the Pharisees. He's saying, I'm that Lord. Didn't, didn't dawn on him. The psalm is about me. I am both divine and human. And the Jews just didn't understand that the Messiah would come as God himself. They wanted a prophet. They wanted a king. They wanted to overthrow their oppressors. They wanted to overthrow Rome. We're going to get our nation back. No. Divine and human. So let's recap because that was a lot to unpack in 30 minutes. Before I lose your attention. There was tongues. It needed to be explained. Peter says God's plan and foreknowledge knew this was happening to Jesus and he lines it up with the harvest of the first fruits which is the harvest of the resurrection and we're the future resurrection. 
And then he tells us that David wrote this psalm. It's crazy because he's right there in the tomb. How could that be him? Dun, dun, dun. Jesus answers it in front of the Pharisees who were the teachers of the law. And they're like, oh my God, what does this mean? They were stumped. David's psalm revealed. And, and you can tell the crowd as... As next we're going to look at, the crowd at this time was getting super emotional. It was dawning on the crowd. They're going, wait a minute. This makes total sense. And you guys are going like, yeah, it makes total. Imagine them going, this is, this is so incredible. You already know the end of the story. They don't even know the end of the story. You know what's going to happen. They don't know what's going to happen. They're going, this, this is, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? But let's pause. Before we understand what it means to them, what does it mean to you? Do you believe it? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Do you believe it? Meaning, here's what I'm asking. Do you live that way? Do you live like you believe? Or do you just come to church? I believe. I believe. Say for Jesus. I believe. No. Do you live what you believe? Because he says, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciple. He says, you just can't intellectually believe in me. The Jews did that. Not good enough. Not enough. Does your life reflect the way you believe? Well, Gio, to be honest, it doesn't. That's all right, actually. Because the best place to start is with honesty. With yourself when you look in the mirror. Too many of us, we convince ourselves we believe in when we don't really do it. And we, we, we code ourselves. We, we're like little cats. We're like, yeah, I believe, I believe. And then when you look at your life and your schedule, there's nothing but you. There's nothing but you. But I'm, I believe, I believe, I believe. And we convince ourselves that we believe. And when we don't, that's shocking. Because two weeks ago I said, there's going to be a day where people are going to be going to Jesus. Yeah, I did this. I did. He's going to say, I don't know you. And that's sad. That is totally sad to get there and then he says, I don't know you. But he's been telling us all along, if you believe it, then live it. Not live it to be saved, just live it because you are saved. That makes sense? It's kind of weird saying that, huh? Live it because you are saved, not live it to be saved. That's a never-ending battle. It's confusing, right? You get exhausted. So that's the recap. If he resurrected first, That means he paved the way for you to be resurrected. That's pretty awesome. It's going to take faith for that, right? So my charge to you is go and live like you believe. So proud of our campus ministry. They're beginning to live like they believe. Our teen ministry, we're, we're going to take them to that fire pit, our teen disciples, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna help them to live what they believe. They need help. Amen. I woke up one night in a cold sweat and said, told myself, what in the world are we doing? Usually I think peacefully. <laughs> Pretty much. I, I felt God going, you know who's got to wake up, Gio? Oh, the campus. No, you. He's got to wake up. No, no, Gio, you got to wake up. And I was like, I don't want to wake up. This guy was kind of, you know, cruise control is kind of nice. Cruise control feels comfortable. I like our new church system. I can just put in cruise control. 
Let's wait for that meeting in six months. So to me, God woke me up. And then I started looking at the Bible and says, man, maybe I should wake more people up. Because if the leader's asleep, I'm sure more are asleep. Amen. And for the ones, if you're not asleep, I'm not talking to you. You're awesome. Keep going. Don't think that I'm always trying to, you know, calling you to be super max disciple. If you're doing awesome, you're doing awesome. I believe you. I'm just trying to call the ones who need to be called up. Does that make sense? So let's go and save your generation. Thanks for your time. Have a great afternoon.